In the harbor of Alexandria, the sirens whoop and wail. The screws of ships crush and crunch the green, oil-coated waters of the inner bar, idly bending and inclining, effortlessly breathing as if in the rhythm of the Earth's own systole and diastole. The yachts turn their spars against the sky. Somewhere in the heart of experience, there is an order and a coherence, which we might surprise if we were attentive enough, loving enough, or patient enough. Will there be time? It kind of reminds me of Robert Frost when he said um, that poetry is a, a temporary stay against confusion. Hello, everyone. In today's recording, Claire and I will chat about Lawrence Durrell's novel Justine. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you a just-for-fun writing prompt that will help you see yourself from a totally new perspective. But first, the quote of the day, which is from Lawrence Durrell. He once wrote, I don't believe one reads to escape reality. A person reads to confirm a reality he knows is there, but which he has not experienced. I think this really beautifully evokes, for me, what might be the greatest pleasure of reading, which is that it provides the ability to live many different lives and have many different experiences, which we could never otherwise have. And for more about an experience which I certainly have not had, let's go into that chat about Justine with me and Claire. So, here we are again. Yeah, here we are. I guess we don't have anything to say today, right? Other than that, you are Claire Agerbrand, author of... Just don't do it. (laughs) uh, What Was Left of the Stars, and The Field is White, which is prose. Yeah. (laughs) What made us read this book? So, my dad recommended this book to me, and whenever my dad recommends a book... It usually ends up being life-changing. And we had never heard of the writer, Lawrence Durrell. The name wasn't even familiar. I had heard of the Alexandria Quartet, but only vaguely. I mean, yeah, it's a book I've heard mentioned. But he's not really talked about. No. So, um, yeah, I I love it when somebody recommends, somebody whose trust I taste recommends a book I've never heard of. Well, the blurb on the front of the book, this is the Penguin edition, the blurb on the front is from the New York Times Book Review, and it says that this book, quote, demands comparison with the very best novels of our century, which is high praise. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you describe this book? People, Most people haven't. It's definitely a more experimental. It has this um, odd narrative style that is fragmented, and though there is a plot, so it, it's not very experimental, but it, it does have a more um, puzzle feel to it. Here is one quote um, that says, Life, the raw material, is only lived in potentia until the artist deploys it in his work. Would that I could do the service of love for poor Justine. I dream of a book powerful enough to contain the elements of her, but it is not the sort of book to which we are accustomed to these days. For example, on the first page, a synopsis of the plot in a few lines. Thus we might dispense with a narrative articulation. What follows would be drama freed from the burden of form. I would set my own book free to dream. He's definitely set his own novel to dream. It kind of meanders very much like a dream, structurally. Yeah. It moves from this scene to that scene. 
to this memory, to this meditation, to the, from this character to that character. Mm-hmm. And we have to kind of assemble the plot as we go. And I tend to not like the description of um, kind of experimental writings as dreamlike, just because I feel like it's, one, easy to write something dreamlike. You just have to, you know, do something that doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> and it's also easy to say about other people's writings that, that it's dreamlike. But I think in this novel, it is actually accurate, and it's not a lazy book. No. It is dreamlike, but it's not a lazy book at all. Everything feels very... It's meticulously structured. Yes. Which we'll get into. This is the narrator speaking. What I most need to do is to record experiences, not in the order in which they took place, for that is history but in the order in which they first became significant for me. So he's not interested in history. He's not interested in offering facts in a chronological Mm -hmm. order. In fact, we get the end of the story at the beginning. Mm -hmm. He's he's alone on an island, I think, with a child, Melissa's child. Mm -hmm. We don't know who Melissa is. He took the child from Nassim. We don't know who that is. Who are these people and why is the novel called Justine? When is she going to come into it? Mm-hmm. You know, so all of this is told in kind of overlapping, spiraling, meandering memories. Yeah. I, I think I've said this. I said this to you that he reminds me a lot of Proust in that way. But then again, most novels remind us of Proust, yeah. <laughs> seemingly inspired Proust, by him. That's right. I mean, one day we'll get to him on this podcast. Because Proust um, talks about memories and the way they happen. The future, the past, the present all seem to happen simultaneously. Mm. And you can be in many places at the same time in many of your memories. You can kind of span centuries uh, or decades like a kind of monster, almost just (laughs) superhuman in in the way that you can be Mm. everywhere. So we've described the kind of structure or seeming structure of this book, but we haven't described any of the events that he's actually narrating. So who who is who in this book and what are they doing? There are several characters, but the most important are the four friends. We have the narrator. We don't know his name. He lives in Alexandria and uh, is a teacher. And he has a relationship with a woman named Melissa and... Later, he has an affair with another woman named Justine, who is married to Nassim. So those are the four important characters. And there is this uh, interesting Freud quote at the beginning. It says, I am accustoming myself to the idea of regarding every sexual act as a process in which four persons are involved. We shall have a lot to discuss about that. That's Freud in a letter, right? Yes. So modern love is the main theme of this novel, but also... You know, it's also clearly a love letter slash prose poem to the city of Alexandria yes, itself, would you say? And he was a travel writer, and you can really tell Dur- how much place... Well, he lived... Yeah, Durrell lived in Alexandria for a few years, just like our narrator. Um, was born in India and then also lived, I think, for most of his life on an island in Greece. Right. So, so the novel is partly concerned with evoking, you know the complexities of modern love, but also just in evoking what the city was like to kind of hold it in a bottle. My first attempt to describe this novel to you when I was a few chapters in was that it's it's a prose poem. I mean, who knows what that term prose poem could even mean, but I do think that it's one of its main stylistic occupations is just to imagistically evoke a city and to use metaphors that are unforgettable. You know, its, its project is yes. so clearly poetic. Yes, absolutely. And Durrell was also a poet, so that's interesting. 
Yeah, it's it's very clear that the narrator slash the writer loves the place as much as Justine. Right. There's so, so many beautiful descriptions of the beginnings of love affairs and just the beginning of romance. And he's so good at describing those small, odd moments. And he said the... The whole morning seemed dense with its marvelous healing powers, the intimations of a grace undeserved and unexpected. And I feel like the whole novel is full of these intimations of a grace undeserved and unexpected. Do you know what I mean? Mm, No, elaborate. Well, all of these metaphors, all of these gorgeous descriptions and glimpses of the place and of people seem to be exactly that. He's trying to show us examples of an unexpected and undeserved grace that even though the narrator is in his own words kind of emotionally or psychologically bankrupt yeah but clearly not you know what i mean well what what do you mean i think i know what you mean but say more about that because he um makes metaphors for 200 plus pages yeah so the narrator i'm not fooled right (laughs) So he is very, I mean, Ennui doesn't begin to describe it, right? He, he he begins the novel announcing that he's a kind of egoist, jaded, bankrupt is his word to describe his emotional state. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem to be able to care about anything, have motivation to do anything. Mm-hmm. The love relationships that he gets into are, they seem more or less to just pass the time. He and, has no right, deep and therefore, commitment. And therefore, because of that, all <clears> of these gorgeous images are undeserved and unexpected. There's nothing like having a or becoming aware of something beautiful um, that he's so good at describing. Yeah, why don't you why don't you give us some? Yes. Just give us a sense of the prose because the prose immediately announces itself as you know dazzling and gem like. I mean, even just the beginning. There, I mean, there's so much, hundreds of examples. Okay. Every page has something gorgeous. But even just the beginning, um, it says the sea is high again today with a thrilling flush of wind. In the midst of winter, you can feel the inventions of spring. A sky of hot, nude pearl until midday. Crickets in sheltered places. And now the wind unpacking the great plains. Ransacking the great plains. Yeah, I mean, a sky of hot, nude pearl is the kind of phrase you get almost in every sentence of this book. Mm-hmm. And just the interesting repetition, too. Unpacking the great plains ransacking the Great Plains. There's this beautiful rhythm, and the inventions of spring is gorgeous, too. He immediately asserts his poetic authority. That's exactly what it is, poetic authority. It's the kind of novel that, yeah, I mean, every sentence announces itself as finely wrought. Yeah. In fact, I mean, people have accused the prose of being too finely wrought, overwrought. It's kind of sickly sweet, Mm. or too opulent. Do you... What what would your reaction to this accusation be that his prose is too jeweled? Oh, that's total BS. <laughs> I oh. mean, it is. Well, elaborate. But it's not. That's that's what makes it amazing. <laughs> so that's the kind of book it is. He's but, not trying to tell a straightforward story. But there is. But there is such a thing as prose that's too fancy, trying too hard to be beautiful. Yeah, but he's got a good balance, I think. I mean, he doesn't stuff his sentences full of adjectives. He's just really good at describing things. Well, that's not only a problem of adjectives, but I mean, there are many allusions to literature, mythology, history, 
the Kabbalah, you know, that we don't understand. Sure. Is it too pretentious? Is the prose too pretentious? Too I, posturing? No, I don't think so. Do you? No, I loved it. I mean, it's one of the best aspects of the novel. But I could oh, see, yeah, for sure. I would understand if someone would get turned off by it. It's, it's like eating tiramisu. Every single sentence is another bite of tiramisu. How much tiramisu can you eat? Yeah, yeah, but it's not every sentence, though. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's almost every other. <laughs> There's this one place where the narrator is drunk and he's walking through this poor quarter of the city and he comes across this building. I think it's supposed to be a kind of brothel. But anyway, there's, he, he walks in on these two people, this couple. And um, I love the way he described them. As if in some incoherent experimental fashion, they were the first partners in the history of the human race to think of those peculiar means of communication. Their posture, so ludicrous and ill-planned, seemed the result of some early trial which might, after centuries of experiment, evolve into a disposition of bodies as breathlessly congruent as a ballet position. And it goes on and on. It's just gorgeous. And there's probably a thousand examples, actually. Let's flesh out some of the other characters a little bit. Because another thing about this novel is, it's not just dreamlike in the way it meanders, but the characters are almost unbelievably strange. They all have some kind of quirk or eccentricity or strange trait. Or mental illness. Justine, especially, she says these things that, you know, her her lines are so odd. She never says anything normal, ever. Like, like what? Whenever she's talking, it's always something like, our love has become like some fearful misquotation in a popular saying. And I absolutely love that. But So she's always saying things like that. That almost sound wise, <laughs> but also... Yeah, slightly too easy to parody, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> no, no one really seems like a, a normal human in this book. All right, and it doesn't bother me because I think once you get into the book, you it becomes clear that you can't expect these characters to be real humans. Like, I think Justine is, she really is some kind of... You know, the fact that we don't get any kind of details really about her life, and we don't really even get a full description. She's described as beautiful and dark, but that's kind of kind of all we get. But she really is a sort of vapid kind of myth, even in the, in the book. Yeah, she does become kind of mythical. There's this wonderful bit on page 77 where Clea says about Justine, It is our disease to want to contain everything within the frame of reference of a psychology or a philosophy. After all, Justine cannot be justified or excused. She simply and magnificently is. Oh, yeah. We have to put up with her like original sin. Yeah. I'm reminded of that moment in Hamlet where he accuses Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of trying to play him like a pipe. And he says, you can't sound me out. You know, basically, I'm uninterpretable. Mm -hmm. You know, I have more mystery in me than you could possibly fathom. Yeah. So, I, and Clea says this, I feel like the the whole narrative project is being critiqued there. You, you know, novelists want to evoke real people. They want to, quote-unquote, characterize. Mm -hmm. Some of them might even want to, quote-unquote, psychologize. Yeah. But human beings are, you know, a human being cannot be reduced to a description mm -hmm. or a diagnosis or a summary. You know, yeah. ha Hamlet is right to assert his unplumbability. <laughs> unplumbability. Why not? <laughs> 
But I want to flesh out some of the other characters in this city so we can get a sense of the strange kind of place that we're living in. Mm. All of these characters have some kind of strange trait, personality, or yeah, or disability. That's another thing that makes this novel very dreamlike because every it's almost like I, I told you, like a David Lynch film. Everything is yes. slightly too weird. Yes, the people like the place. The place is very beautiful and very dark. Yeah, so there's there's this Babylonian barber, whatever that is, whose name is Nemjian, and he's a kind of hunchback dwarf with a huge Victorian mustache. Is he the one that's great with the ladies? Yeah, and he he, <laughs> he he brags that women are, you know, kind of like sexually attracted to his hump on his back. That's one character. There is Balthazar, who is this kind of Kabbalah, backgammon-playing, Kabbalah-studying gay. But he is married. He also had a thing with Melissa. And then there's Cappadistria, who, in fact, one of my favorite descriptions in the book is about Cappadistria. Cappadistria has the purely involuntary knack of turning everything into a woman. Under his eyes, chairs become painfully conscious of their bare legs. He impregnates things. At table, I have seen a watermelon become conscious under his gaze so that it felt the seeds inside it stirring with life. Women feel like birds confronted by a viper when they gaze into that narrow, flat face with its tongue always moving across the thin lips. Mm. He's extremely... Durrell is extremely good, maybe better than anyone I've read recently at metaphors and characterizations like this. Do you remember Melissa dances in this nightclub? That's kind of her job. And, you and remember, she's not very good at her no, job either. She, she's a bad dancer. And he's, the first time he sees her dancing, he, desc- he describes her by saying that she has the look of a giraffe tied to a water wheel. <laughs> <laughs> That's how she dances. <laughs> it's incredible. It's just oh, you know, absolute... I forgot about that image. That makes it more interesting that the only other time the giraffe is mentioned is when a giraffe being taken to slaughter in the street is cut down and... They're chopping away at its limbs. While it's still conscious. Yeah. It's this horrible, like I said, that's like straight out of, out of a David Lynch, you know, kind of nightmare. Mm-hmm. They can't move it because it's too big. So they just start cutting off its meat and its limbs while it's awake. And, and it looks like confused about what's going on, you know. what calm. It's so creepy. It's horrible. And um, it leaves this big blood stain and bloody dust that yeah. the characters walk around and... So every few pages, there's you're given an image like that, and you think, wow, this is... Anyway, so there's Nemjian, Balthazar, Cappadistria. There's Clea, who is strange in her own right. She's one of my favorite characters. She's this kind mm-hmm. of painter, artist, yeah, asexual or bisexual nun. She becomes a kind of nun. Yeah, the narrator says it's she unsettles people because she's beautiful, but chooses not to be with anyone. Well, we do learn later that she was with Justine. Yeah. Anyway, that's the kind of cast of characters we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. I want to give you a few more of these dazzling metaphors, though. Oh, there's a character, Purse Warden, who I think is like a British, she must be a British writer, poet. Mm-hmm. And his name is Purse Warden. He's also living there in Alexandria. There's this wonderful sentence. In the corridor stood Purse Warden, looking pale and rather perky, as if he had just been fired out of a gun into a net. That was a good one. Um, a couple more here. So many enviable metaphors. There's this wonderful bit describing this kind of like oasis place with green fig trees. And these green fig trees, quote, offer a shade so deep as to be like a wet cloth pressed to the skull. Oh, yeah. Extremely visceral, you know? I know. So these absolutely pervade, metaphors like this absolutely pervade the book. I know. 
And later there's a part where they go duck hunting, which is super creepy and gorgeous too. They're out in the night and these shapes, these people walk towards the narrator and he says they look like shapes cut right out of the night. Mm. I mean, that's just a minor metaphor, but it's just an example. Oh, there's one more beautiful description I want to read. It's about this wind. Oh, it's yeah. absolutely gorgeous. Oh, I this remember. wind in Egypt. It's a hot, sandy wind called the Khamsin. That stuff goes on for like a whole page. It's amazing. Yeah, here it is. That second spring, the Khamsin was worse than I had ever known it before or since. Before sunrise, the skies of the desert turned brown as buckram, and then slowly darkened, swelling like a bruise and at least releasing the outlines of cloud, giant octaves of ochre, which massed up from the delta like the drift of ashes under a volcano. The city has shuttered itself tightly, as if against a gale. A few gusts of air and a thin, sour rain are the forerunners of the darkness which blots out the light of the sky. And now, unseen in the darkness of shuttered rooms, the sand is invading everything, appearing as if by magic in clothes long locked away, books, pictures, and teaspoons, in the locks of doors, beneath fingernails. The harsh, sobbing air dries the membranes of throats and noses and makes eyes raw with the configurations of conjunctivitis. Clouds of dried blood walk the streets like prophecies. The sand is settling into the sea like powder into the curls of a stale wig. Choked fountain pens, dry lips, and along the slats of the Venetian shutters thin white drifts as of young snow. The ghastly feluccas passing along the canal are crewed by ghouls with rapt heads. From time to time a cracked wind arrives from directly above and stirs the whole city round and round so that one has the illusion that everything Trees, minarets, monuments, and people have been caught in the final eddy of some great whirlpool, and will pour softly back at last into the desert from which they rose, reverting once more to the anonymous wave-sculptured floor of dunes. <sighs> Love that wig. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's so great. How the wig get <laughs> A powdered it? wig, yeah. And the fountain pens being dried up. <sighs> it's amazing. Mm. So we mentioned a while ago that the book might only seem on the surface to be meandering and dreamlike, we both kind of alluded to the fact that it actually is quite a deliberate and rigorous structure. Mm -hmm. We could mean several things by that, but one thing I want to talk about is all of the mirror imagery in the book. There's clearly something symbolically going on with the mirror motif. So many things of significance happen in a mirror. People talk to each other in mirrors. See each other through telescopes. You know, which is just made out of mirrors. And then my favorite iteration of this motif is that the narrator finds out that Justine, this woman he's in love with, was actually married years before to a man who wrote a novel about her. Mm -hmm. And our narrator gets his hands on this novel and starts reading it. And quoting it extensively. Extensively, for pages. Mm -hmm. So for many pages of this novel, we're reading a novel inside of a novel, but it's about the same character that our novel is about. It's so interesting. But the big difference being that it's a lot more, I don't know, a more clinical approach to Justine. What do you mean? He's trying to figure her out psychologically. So he's trying to explain her with facts. And he's trying to get to the, the mystery that she is with straightforward language. Our narrator is? No, her first husband who wrote the book mm. about her. The book within the book. <laughs> right. They both seem equally obsessed with Justine. I mean, mm -hmm. I think you're right now that you, you forced me to think about it, that the narrator of the novel inside the novel, he's not writing things like a sky like hot nude pearl. 
Exactly. It's you know, a he's, different style. He's yeah. less of a poet. So it's as if uh, this whole book, Justine, is trying to approach two or um, show two different approaches to the problem that is Justine, a psychological one and a poetic one, and mm. neither mm. can nail her. You know what I mean? They neither can reduce her, reduce her, or make sense of her. Which one gets closer is the question. Definitely the poet, poet, poetic one, I would say. Well, here's a good way to transition to some of the, I don't know what we want to say, hesitations or frustrations we had with this book. We don't love all books the same. Right. And while we both recognize this book is a masterpiece in its own way, it, it's not without flaws. Mm-hmm. I think it starts out really strong, and then it sags a bit in the middle. And then the end is really strong again. Yeah, I mean, m- most great books have saggy middles. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Proust, my favorite novel, is the most, <laughs> the most boring uh, sections I've ever read. But it does maybe kind of overly, I don't know, I felt, uh, first of all, I should say, we, we won't go out of our way to talk about books that we don't like. We did both like this book. Oh, yeah. It's, no it's, point. it's one of the best books I've read in a while, especially language-wise. Yeah, there's no point bashing a book just, you know, for the sake of bashing a book. Mm-hmm. But I did often wonder if the... I went back and forth with myself over the issue of, is the depiction of love in this novel too melodramatic or too psychologized or armchair psychologized, you know, too kind of Freudian? All of these grown adults wandering around like juvenile, mopey juvenile teenagers who don't know how to live. Mm. I don't know. It gets old. Yeah. It does feel like that for most of the book. But then I think the end does redeem the book because characters do mature. And that's very gratifying. And I would also add to that, yeah, so I say I went back and forth. And I I think I do finally come down on the side of this kind of um, immature navel-gazing isn't something that the book advocates or celebrates. Mm -hmm. I think there are clues throughout the book that Durrell, the author, doesn't want us to think of the narrator as someone who is reliable or authoritative or admirable. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The narrator calls himself an egoist. He calls himself yeah. morally bankrupt. Yeah. He says that he has no desires or motivation or he's well aware of his flaws. Mm-hmm. And he does admit that his lust for Justine and other women blinds him. He also says that he wants, I can't remember what page this is on, but he also says that he wants to get down the facts. He wants to put the facts down and aspires to a writing that is devoid of style. He says that about himself. Mm-hmm. Which I think, okay, we're clearly not dealing with a, an honest broker here. Yeah, or, or, or at least, at the very least, he's not self-aware. He's not very self-aware, because all he cares about is style. I, I know what you mean. I do find it kind of moving, though, because, I mean, who doesn't, especially writers, what writer doesn't yearn for an ability to just say things as they are, crystallized sort of truth? But words get in the way, and your style gets in the way, and then that's right. not. And, and then plus, it's not really what you want. You don't want to just say offer facts. But there is a part of you that does yearn for being able to say exactly what you want to say, right? In the clearest sort of way, right? And what about the way that women are treated or portrayed in this book? We had some hesitations about that too, didn't we? Yeah, Justine is obviously surrounded by. Selfish males. Well, they're all so immature and selfish. And uh, I think there's, there's that one detail. I think it's Cappadistria who, I think, I can't remember. It could be another character. Maybe it's Nassim, actually. He relates the story that his father actually built 
a life-sized model of a woman. That, mm. You remember this? That you could that oh, you could fill God, with that was so creepy. You could fill this model with hot water <laughs> so that she felt warm. Oh, the body temperature. I forgot about and that. And he would carry her around, and he would oh talk gosh, to her, I and forgot. he would, <laughs> and he would refer to her, and he would like tell. I can't remember <laughs> this doll's name, but oh my God, that's the weirdest part of the book. How could I have forgotten? It? It's so eerie. It's so eerie. I mean that that I, the warmth. Oh my god. Yeah, it's creepy. I like that detail a lot because that's what you do with writing. Well, wait. What do you mean by that? In characterization, you have this fake thing you're trying to fill with warmth. Okay, well, I hadn't that had not occurred to me, but you're right. So there are there are at least a couple things being critiqued by this image. Mm. I think we're getting a hint here, right? Like what's being critiqued. What I thought is being critiqued is this is how men in this novel behave. They want all these women around them to be mindless dolls that they can own and operate. Yes. Yeah. And this doll that he builds is just a concrete representation of that desire. Mm -hmm. So I actually see Durrell, the author, as totally conscious of the fact that his male characters are egotistical, maybe even misogynists. Yeah. So the fact that Durrell is kind of tongue-in-cheek, kind of critiquing the attitudes of the men in this book, Mm -hmm. I find admirable and redemptive. Yeah. You're absolutely right, too. What could be being critiqued there is, yeah, the authorial desire to... It's a kind of um, Pygmalion. It's a kind of Pygmalion desire. You want to build... From Ovid's Metamorphoses, right? You want to build a, a statue of a girl and to fall in love with, and then you want that statue to come to life. You know, that's what Pygmalion does. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what artists and novelists want to do. You know, they want to create people that aren't real, but then become real. And this is a kind of silly way of mocking that. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, and you do that with relationships too. You want to you you not only do you want to, but you do also create. The person that you fall in love with because you choose to see them the way you want to see them. Well, it's actually Clea who says this. She's talking to the narrator and she says this. She finds out that he's in love with Justine and she says this to him. There are only three things to be done with a woman. You can love her, suffer for her, or turn her into literature. (laughs) Yeah. What kind of redeemed... I mean, I really love the ending. What redeemed the narrator for me is the end where he says, I have decided to leave Clea's last letter unanswered. Wait, before you go there, oh, we so- should we should build up to... Uh, what happens plot-wise? Well, we... Melissa dies. Yeah. We're not sure of what. He has she all has the a- illnesses, apparently. Melissa has a, a baby by Nassim. A brief fling, yeah, but he does actually fall in love with her for a minute. Then dies, and then we learn... One of the things we learn about Justine along the way is that Years ago, she was raped by somebody. We never quite know who. But somebody she sees in the city often. Someone who's still around and she bumps into from time to time. The narrator is trying to find out who this person is. And she sort of recreates this horrible Mm. experience in her own sexual life, like like an obsession. Yeah, it's become an obsessive drama for her. Yeah. It ends with this kind of extended scene at a duck hunt. There's this quote-unquote horrible accident and Cappadistria ends up dead. It doesn't take long for us to kind of be strongly hinted that this is an intentional killing. Mm-hmm. Nassim has had him shot in revenge for, we think, raping Justine. When she was very young. And um, the narrator for a while fears that Nassim wanted to kill him because he's found out about the affair. Mm-hmm. Anyway... After this, Justine leaves. She leaves Alexandria and does what? Becomes what? 
she claims that uh, she has found a new and perfect happiness through community service. And Clea says the air in which she said this suggested some sort of religious conversion. In all the back-breaking sweat of the communist settlement, she claimed to have achieved a new humility. And uh, she described the work of the settlement coarsely, unimaginatively, as a peasant might. So it's not very clear. Yeah, that, it's, it's, that's quite ambiguous. I mean, is that good for her? Is that going to be a good move? Is this just some new obsession, some new desperate attempt at healing and redemption? And I don't know. We, I, I might fear she's being driven from one extreme to another extreme. Yeah. So she actually, after she even looks physically totally different, mm. she gains weight and she looks, um, she's older and she has rough calloused hands and she looks plain, like just a completely unremarkable woman is the way she's described. So that's, I found that really interesting. It's as if it was her suffering that made her interesting to the narrator, to everyone in the book. Yeah. And then as soon as you remove suffering, there's just a plain, uninteresting well, person. What can we say? Suffering's been removed? Yeah, her, maybe her rapist has been killed, but that, you know. Of course, no, that doesn't literally remove suffering. But it provided great relief and the great... Um, a kind of closure. Yeah. So I thought that was weird and it kind of bothered me a little bit, especially because, uh, you know, this kind of troubled woman, pixie, manic pixie dream girl... I don't know, femme fatale. Right. It's so romanticized. And I don't know if this book is critiquing people's, the way people romanticize these sort of characters, or it, if it's not. It is on a kind of knife's edge. It, it might be wanting to have its cake and eat it too. I mean, I think it is critiquing it, but it's also indulging in it a lot. Yeah. You know, it's obsessively meditating over who she is and and what is love. and. But I think you're right. I think there are other images and aspects and events in the novel which make this obsession the subject of mockery or critique at least and the ending suggests that, that the only way that the narrator at least is able to mature is by ceasing this kind of romantic armchair psychologizing mm -hmm. and he does seem to grow up a bit mm -hmm. he unexpectedly he doesn't seem to care about anything in the whole book for the whole book you know he even at one point learns that Justine's daughter was kidnapped as a six-year-old, and his only response to that is, and who is the child's father? Like, he doesn't give any thought to the welfare of the child or how to find the child. Or <laughs> I know that I was really bothered by that part. I thought, oh, wow, now he's really, you know, since he loves Justine, he's really going to think about this detail. He's going to maybe even address it or talk to her about it or... Nothing. So that bothered me, but... Uh, you know, his response to that piece of news is just more navel-gazing. He makes that about himself. Yeah. So Justine is gone, and at the end of the novel, the narrator takes Melissa's child mm -hmm. and leaves the city and goes to raise it. Right, since Melissa died. Since Melissa's dead. He had nothing to do with the child. So that's a kind of act of selfless interest, you know, in someone else's life, a small person's life. Mm -hmm. He didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's a kind of redemption, too, for this daughter that was kidnapped. I mean, she's not brought back or anything, but in a way, another child is saved. Right. Kind of vicariously. Right, right. Yeah. So he and Clea start writing these letters back and forth. Mm -hmm. That's how he found, finds out what happens to Justine, and then the novel ends. The cicadas are throbbing in the Great Plains, and the summer... 
Mediterranean lies before me in all its magnetic blueness. Somewhere out there beyond the mauve, throbbing line of the horizon lies Africa, lies Alexandria, maintaining its tenuous grasp on one's affections through memories which are already refunding themselves slowly into forgetfulness. Memory of friends, of incidents long past. The slow unreality of time begins to grip them, blurring the outlines, so that sometimes I wonder whether these pages record the actions of real human beings or whether this is not simply the story of a few inanimate objects which precipitate a drama around them. I mean a black patch, a green finger stall, a watch key, and a couple of dispossessed wedding rings. Soon it will be evening, and the clear night sky will be dusted thickly with summer stars. I shall be here as always, smoking by the water. I have decided to leave Clea's last letter unanswered. I no longer wish to coerce anyone to make promises, to think of life in terms of compacts, resolutions, covenants. It will be up to Clea to interpret my silence according to her own needs and desires, to come to me if she has need or not, as the case may be. Does not everything depend on our interpretation of the silence around us? It's so beautiful. It's gorgeous. And you think it's evidence of moral growth? Yeah, absolutely. I really do think so. How so? I no longer wish to coerce anyone or even to make promises. I think he's he's finally understanding that in his relationships with these women, Melissa and Justine, he was um he was forcing them, though he he's not a misogynist in this novel. He I mean, he doesn't even do anything particularly terrible to them. But he does realize that in in his relationship with them he was he was forceful. He kind of forced them to be different people. I think he. I think Durrell surely must have read Snow Country because it's the mirrors again. Remember this conversation we had about the mirrors in Snow Country? Yeah. This this narrator also sees not women but mirror images of himself. Yes. So that's why one reason maybe why mirrors pop up again and again. So yeah, he he doesn't do anything explicitly harmful to them. He doesn't desire them harm, but he doesn't see them either. Exactly, he doesn't see them exactly. And he only wishes to understand them in relation to their feelings towards him. And um, Until this very last paragraph. Exactly. And he even says he won't make promises because he... I'm kind of reading that as, I'm not going to make promises that I know I can't keep yet. Right. Because he's clearly, you know, has problems <laughs> with being loyal to one person romantically. He's, for the first time in this novel, maybe in his life, choosing to give a woman space and time to respond in her own way, in her own time to him. I love what these paragraphs say about memory. Mm. So there across the sea lies Alexandria, maintaining its tenuous grasp on one's affections through memories, which are always refunding themselves slowly into forgetfulness. You know, Alexandria is famous for its ancient library. So it, it of all, it kind of has to be Alexandria. It couldn't, I mean, although, you know, what happens in Alexandria could happen in maybe most big and old cities in the world, Alexandria is a kind of symbol of memory. It was a repository of the ancient world's memory because of its famous library. You know, held all these ancient texts. It was this enormous building or complex of buildings. And it eventually declined and was destroyed. I don't really exactly know how, but most of its collection was lost, you know, burned you know, in this war or that war. Mm. So it's a symbol, I suppose, a symbol not only of memory, but of forgetfulness, as this narrator says, you know. Mm. 
There's also a part in the book where the narrator says he feels himself as part of the fabric of the city and that he has very little choice in kind of what happens, as if he has no agency. He's mm. just like one of the objects in the city, changing with time. And I thought that was interesting because obviously there's many things we have, you know, the ability to change, but in many ways we are part of the fabric of a place mm. and are um, subject to all the changes of the place. Right, yeah. How do you think that pertains to the rest of the novel? The act of remembering is so conspicuously made a part of the structure of this narration. What's being narrated isn't the actions that happened in the city, it's the act of trying to remember them and piece them back together. So he's looking at a past series of events which has already happened and which he in which he has no agency to change. Mm -hmm. He can't change what he did in the past. Yeah. So he's looking at this series of events in the past that is, that happened. Yeah. As if it's a novel. Okay. And he can't change what he as a character did in the past. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think there's a great longing in this novel to want to give something as incoherent and fuzzy and out of our control as the past a kind of shape or form or structure. Mm -hmm. So he says this, As for me, I am neither happy nor unhappy. I lie suspended like a hair or a feather in the cloudy mixtures of memory. Yeah, I, I love that. I spoke of the uselessness of art, but added nothing truthful about its consolations. The solace of such work as I do with brain and heart lies in this, that only there, in the silences of the painter or the writer, can reality be reordered, reworked, and made to show its significant side. Mm. Our common actions in reality are simply the sackcloth covering which hides the cloth of gold, the meaning of the pattern. For us artists, there waits the joyous compromise through art with all that wounded or with all that wounded or defeated us in daily life. In this way, not to evade destiny as the ordinary people tried to do, but to fulfill it in its true potential, the imagination. And then later in that paragraph, he says, perhaps this is a useless attempt. I cannot say, but I must try. All right. That's a great quote. He's at least humble enough to admit that... Uh he may not, may not succeed at this, right? but he will try. Um, but I, I, I love that he's arguing that there's something artists can offer to ordinary experience in, in helping us um, more fully understand slash appreciate our reality. Yeah, that it, in order for us to, yeah, that reality needs to be reordered or reworked in order for its true significance to be seen. Yes, that's the key there, reordered and reworked. Because as we experience it in our everyday life, obviously, we're not always able to, most of the time, we're not able to yeah. it's what see the significance. It's what Dickinson says, the mind is too near itself, it, it cannot see, you know? So while yeah. we're living it, we're too immersed in it to see what is significant and what is it. And, mm -hmm. and we, yeah, we need works like this to structure reality, to restructure reality. Mm -hmm. Later in the book, almost at the very end, the narrator says this, In the harbor of Alexandria, the sirens whoop and wail. The screws of ships crush and crunch the green, oil-coated waters of the inner bar, idly bending and inclining, effortlessly breathing, as if in the rhythm of the earth's own systole and diastole, the yachts turn their spars against the sky. Somewhere in the heart of experience, there is an order and a coherence, which we might surprise if we were attentive enough, loving enough, or patient enough, will there be time? 
Maybe my favorite paragraph in the book. So good. It's so beautiful. I love that addition of loving enough. You know, we have to love reality or love the past, love things. And if we love them enough and are patient enough, we will be able to see in what looks like chaos, a kind of order. That's good. That needs to be on our fridge. A kind Let's make of, a fridge magnet. <laughs> a kind of coherence, yeah. I love this this verb, too, that somewhere in the heart of experience there is an order and a coherence which we might surprise. I know. You know, right? like a deer in the forest. Like it's not expecting us to be there at all yeah. and to get that far. <laughs> That's right. To burst into its inner sanctum. Because nobody's there. Right. Oh, I love that. Few people make it there. So there is a place where you can see in a, the chaos of life an order and a coherence and a pattern. Mm. And to get there requires love and patience and attention if we are attentive enough. I love also that this paragraph ends, will there be time? You know, So it's not a guarantee that we'll get there. And there's yeah. great risk that we will run out of time before we see it, but it's there. It kind of reminds me of Robert Frost when he said um, that poetry is a, a temporary stay against confusion. Do you right. think that goes with this idea? Yeah, 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 I think so. I mean, life is confusing. Art gives us pause, a stay against that, oh. but it's only momentary. Right. We can't live in a pause. Yeah. I'm going to look into his poetry. Yeah, I've read I'm one of his poems. I found one online. And? The Poetry Foundation, I think, website. They only have one? Possibly three. I read one of them. It was really good. I liked it. Yeah, liked I'm curious too. I'm really curious. And of course, this is only the first novel in the Alexandria Quartet. There are three more. And he says, and I think it's the Paris Review interview that he, since, I don't know, you know, I think we should always take statements like this with a grain of salt. But uh, he says one of the things that inspired this this sequence of novels was Einstein's ideas of relativity and four dimensions, three of space and one of time. Hmm. So apparently the first three novels all take place in the same space, Alexandria, and kind of retell certain similar events. Okay. Fourth novel, The Dimension of Quote-Unquote Time, takes place many years later. Weird. And kind of looks at these, yeah, from the, a new dimension, a new temporal dimension. So that's the structure of the Alexandria Quartet, kind of extremely generally speaking. So you read the whole uh, interview, or was that just... Yeah. Was it good? Yeah, it's good. I mean, those are rarely bad. Any other interesting things from the interview? Well, he just talks about his life. You know, he traveled a lot as a kid, kind of international upbringing. Loves Henry Miller, fell in love with the Tropic of Cancer. That's one thing that got him started as a writer. Um, yeah. He went back to Alexandria later, and like, he lived there for a few years, just like this narrator went back. And, you know, what is to be expected other than it was not the same place and everything that he loved about the city was gone. Mm. Goodbye. Goodbye. Now it's time for the writing prompt. This prompt is inspired by maybe my favorite aspect of the novel. It's the novel inside of the novel. As you recall from that chat with Claire, the narrator of Justine learns that Justine is the subject of another novel that's already been written by a character in this novel. He gets his hand on this book, starts reading it and commenting on its perception of the woman that he is writing his own book about. It's all very meta and postmodern. But, you know, as a reminder that there is nothing new under the sun, it's a trope stolen directly from Cervantes. As you remember, in the second part of Don Quixote, there are characters who have gotten their hands on the first part of Don Quixote. 
in which they were characters, and they've read this book, and and they comment on their various portrayals in that first part. So for this writing prompt, I want you to do something a little bit similar. I want you to imagine that you are the subject of a novel written by someone else. And then imagine you get your hands on this novel and you start to read it. What has this author observed about you from the outside that maybe you haven't seen before or can't see? What actions or attitudes or habits or traits really only become visible to you when you impose this kind of outsider perspective on yourself? And then in just a kind of free write, pretend that you are the narrator of that other novel, a kind of stranger, writing about this person with your name and your life. Write about yourself in the third person. She does this. She looks like this. She says this, you know? And see exactly what comes to light about yourself through this exercise of defamiliarization or third-person perspective. Now for the poem of the day. There are actually two poems that become explicitly important in the novel Justine and which the narrator actually provides loose translations of at the end. They are both by the Greek poet C.P. Cavafy, who lived for many years in Alexandria. One of these poems is called The City, and it was actually the poem of the day that I featured on the episode about Calvino's novel Invisible Cities. The second poem, which I'd like to read now, is called The God Abandons Antony. It's translated by Edmund Keeley and Philip Sherrard. When suddenly at midnight you hear an invisible procession going by with exquisite music, voices, don't mourn your luck that's failing now, work gone wrong, your plans all proving deceptive, don't mourn them uselessly. As one long prepared and graced with courage, say goodbye to her, the Alexandria that is leaving. Above all, don't fool yourself, don't say it was a dream, your ears deceived you, don't degrade yourself with empty hopes like these. As one long prepared and graced with courage, as is right for you who proved worthy of this kind of city, go firmly to the window and listen with deep emotion, but not with the whining, the pleas of a coward. Listen, your final delectation, to the voices, to the exquisite music of that strange procession, and say goodbye to her, to the Alexandria you are losing. That's it for now. I don't know what Claire and I will be reading next, but in the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. Mm-hmm.